As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Basketball tournament is now behind us, though I will tell you we've got some mailbag questions related to it coming up. Bruce, what's on your good mind? Good games, right? Good, good games, right, Stu? It was fun. The national championship game, I think a lot of us underestimated. It was just so surreal to see this event that has traditionally been dominated by the likes of UNC, Duke, Kentucky, etc., that you get to the final night of the season, and it's Virginia versus Texas Tech. Not that those teams weren't good teams who were deserving. They absolutely were. Just not the traditional brands you expect to see. But then the game happened, and it wasn't this ugly defensive showdown that people thought there would be. It was very exciting. It was guys hitting big shot after big shot. You know, you can't beat overtime of a national championship game. What I was interested in a little bit, and this is college football related, is, and some of this is anecdotal, it's however many people show up on your timeline to say something, it's like, okay, this feels like, when you're saying a lot of people, and I felt like it was, you know, definitely more than three or four, we're saying, oh, this game's going to be a dog, you know, everything like that, the brands issue. Well, on the college football side, there's a lot of frustration from a lot of people who are like, oh, it's going to be Alabama fatigue, pretty soon you're going to have people, you may already have, who have Clemson fatigue. And it's just those two schools, whereas here's the flip side of it. You have Texas Tech way off the radar and Virginia, who's been very good in the regular season, but has not been a big player in Final Four basketball. And all of a sudden now it's like it was riveting. And I mean, again, I always come back to it's live sports. I don't want to hear people predicting, you know, getting too caught up into no one's going to watch. It's going to suck or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, People watched and it was it was fun. And I, again, I'm not saying that if you had, I don't know, let's say if somehow Utah State goes 12, you know, goes 13 and 0 this year, that they would become a big factor and people would tune in. And, they, you know, it's, it's a different animal football from college hoops. But again, I just think the brands versus no brands or, or not big brands is a very interesting dynamic. Well, the, the biggest difference, right? is that in the NCAA tournament, you have three weeks of build-up to that game. It's not like football on December 2nd. You say, here's the four teams, 
and then they play one game, and then they're in the championship. You know, Virginia and Texas Tech played their way into it. Virginia had these dramatic games in both the uh, Elite Eight and semifinals, so I'm sure that helps in terms of if you get a non-traditional game like that. And just, it was a great game. If you look at, I I mean, I definitely undershot what I, I think the rating was like a 12.4. I thought it would be. Yeah, it was, it, it was better than, and even though it was on CBS, not like, you know, last year's was on Turner, so it's yeah. hard to really compare, but it was better than three other title games that were on CBS in the last decade. It was over, is, including a UNC Michigan State game. So, I, you know, and a Kentucky that, Kansas game. But that UNC Michigan State game was a blowout. So I think but it was that better makes a big difference. Kentucky Kansas game. I mean, those are those are significant. It's you surprising. Know, you know what it shows, and I think we talked about this with Ralph Russo a few weeks ago. March Madness is basically Teflon. <laughs> It doesn't matter if the FBI is investigating people or, or Michael Avenatti is throwing stuff out on Twitter or you don't get the Zion doesn't make the final four. People love March Madness. And, uh, you know, I think the college football playoff, college football is so huge in general that obviously there's like a baseline of people that are going to watch it. But I do think, you know, we've seen those ratings fluctuate quite a bit from year to year in the playoffs because, because there's not this whole month you know, surrounding it. In fact, I always think it's hurt college football a little bit that those semifinal games are now played in what is literally the slowest week of the year on the internet, the, the week between Christmas and New Year's Day. I think when it was Alabama versus Ohio State and Jameis Winston versus Marcus Mariota, that's an obvious sell. But there's been other years where, where they haven't done as well. But, you know, much like what you were talking about with the, with the talk going into this basketball game, I remember the year, two years ago, Alabama-Georgia, how much I was getting the, you know, I don't want to watch two SEC teams, I'm sick of it, blah, blah, blah. And then it's a classic game decided on two as touchdown pass and the ratings were through the roof. So it really does matter what kind of game it is. Yeah, also one thing that I was curious about is I saw show up on my timeline on Monday a little bit where people are like, well, they start the game so late and they start football an hour earlier. Well, football, those games, especially in college football, those games almost run four hours long. Whereas college basketball, even when it goes into overtime, you know, college basketball is a two-hour game. Right. So I don't, I don't know exactly why they decide to run it at nine twenty as opposed to like eight fifty. But uh, you know, Michael Mulvihill, who I work with at Fox, who's a, who's a TV executive and studies ratings, they want to ideally get the stretch of the game down around eleven thirty Eastern. And I guess that's in line with where it was. A lot of inside baseball, and you and I have had discussions you know, offline a lot about, I'm surprised how much people care about ratings. Not, I'm not surprised why people in TV care about it, but it's almost like a lot of folks say, oh, the ratings are terrible as if it invalidates the stuff. And what I always come back to is if the games are, if the games are competitive and they're, and they're really entertaining, people are going to watch because much like I don't, like you, I think, uh, neither one of us are diehard hockey fans. But if we get into the NHL playoffs and there's a game seven or there's a, a series where all of a sudden you're noticing it on your timeline a lot or it's college World Series or something else where I'd say we're not like riveted to in the regular season, I'm going to find it on my TV because I'm going to see it on my timeline and I'm going to be I'm going to probably get engaged and, and interested in it. And sometimes I think that that aspect of social media for a lot of people is really undervalued and under undersold well i definitely saw some twitter chatter to the effect of 
going, why do you guys care? Why do you think people would care about TV? Why do you always tweet or write about TV rating? You really think fans care about that? Well, maybe not the, you know, the nuts and bolts of it, but first of all, I mean, it's been one of the biggest surprises to me in general is how much the general public cares about the sports media and specifically TV industry. I mean, Richard Deitch, our colleague, has made has made his niche on that, and you know, he has a whole podcast devoted to it. He has a weekly column devoted to it, and people eat it up. So there is an interest, and also just in, in, in college football in particular, ESPN is a part of the sport. Fox is a part of the sport. Games get scheduled or not scheduled based on the TV networks, the conferences. I mean, we spent so much time talking about the money and the media rights and how important that is. So yeah, whether the game gets a certain like particular specific number you might not care about, but whether they do well or don't do well is a story because of the influence these media companies play. And a perfect example, right, a few years ago was the New Year's Eve, the first time they did New Year's Eve playoff semifinals. The fact that the ratings were so atrocious was a huge story that caused them to flat out change it the next year. Yeah, and I think we see it where the visibility of certain people, Kirk Herbstreit definitely is tops of the list as it comes to college football, where I think a lot of college football fans, people have a better idea of who Kirk Herbstreit is and have heard his voice than they do of probably, I don't know, 80% of college football coaches. Yep. I mean, head coaches, I would put. And those, it's not just him. I mean, I think, you know, he's at the top of that list, but I think it goes goes down, you know, from – you know, Reese or Joel Klatt or certainly Todd Blackledge and Gary Danielson, just because they are, as you said, so much a part of the TV broadcasting experience. And we watch games on TV, especially now more than when you and I were growing up, because there's just more of a menu to it. I don't know how we got on this. I, I know I probably wasn't planned, but that's all right. Get us down this rabbit hole because we're all podcast of rabbit holes. We will get to our guest later on the podcast, Nicole Auerbach, who has done a lot of coverage of the NCAA tournament. And by the way, big shout out to our colleagues, the athletic on the college basketball site. They were fantastic in bringing home, finding and, and delivering stories that I think really were just celebrated the sport, but were just very riveting coverage of like the emotional roller coaster, whether it's the families of some of these players or the stories of a lot of people that I think, quite honestly, most people weren't getting anyplace else. Yeah, one of the best, most, you know, I think, things that really sets the athletic apart, if I can go on a little bit of a two-dar horn thing for a second, the way they cover big events, and especially that college basketball team, they're not going to write the instant story about Virginia Auburn. Dana O'Neill was in the stands with Kyle Guy's parents and wrote a whole story about what it's like to, from that perspective, the parents watching, you know, the most nerve-wracking situation a college basketball player could possibly go through and, and a lot of others just like that. Nicole was there at the Final Four, but we're, and I'm not going to talk to her about the basketball so much as some of the scene around the game, uh, as well as a really powerful story she wrote for our site, for the college football site this week. But what else is on your mind right now in college football? Well, I got back, I went to Nebraska after our, uh, after we finished up, after I finished up my LSU trip. And that was uh, good. I was there at the same time as the Nebraska Coaches Clinic. This is very random. I like walk into the football complex and I'm sitting there in the lobby waiting for somebody I'm supposed to you know, spend some time with on the Nebraska staff. And who walks in but Tom Osborne? <laughs> and I, I don't think like I'd interacted with him a little bit. I can't say I ever sat across from his office and he came over and said hi. And I said, uh, 
I said, you here for the conscious clinic today? He goes, I'm here to see my friend Bill Snyder, who was speaking there. And I said, like, wow, that's a lot of wins <laughs> between two guys. That's pretty awesome. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was a good trip for, I don't know, I was there for probably two days. But uh, Stu, I want to ask you, so I, as we're doing this today on Wednesday, your mailbag went up on the site. And the first question is an interesting one to me. And it talked about the expectations on one of those blue blood programs, the University of Tennessee, and Jeremy Pruitt, the head coach. For people who haven't read it yet, so why don't you give the background of, of your thought process on what you think the expectations are on him and Tennessee football in 2019 after one. You were there last year, by the way, as context, and you visited Jeremy Pruitt before his first season. Well, the reader, who is clearly a Tennessee fan, asked basically if there was a, if this was going to be a five-year rebuild to get to be competitive in the SEC East. And to which I said, you know, as bad as things were when Jeremy Pruitt took over, I don't think there is such a thing as a five-year rebuild anymore. And certainly not at a big program like Tennessee. I think you get more like three. And so, you know, I think there is some tempered expectations and, and acknowledgement that he's cleaning up a huge mess that left behind by the Butch Jones regime. So they're not going to be Georgia. You know, they're not going to be what, you know, what Kirby Smart did in year two at Georgia. They're not starting from the same place. But I tend to think that by next year, by 2020, he's going to be expected to have a team that's in contention, or at the very least, going to a, to a major bowl game. And if so not, you're saying it should, by year three, it should be a top 15 team. Correct. Because he's recruiting at that level, he's going to recruit at that level, or he already has to this point. And really, when you think about the SEC East, you know, while, while almost every program in that division has had its moment uh, at some point. Missouri played in two SEC title games. Kentucky had a great year last year. South Carolina under Spurrier. At the end of the day, it's when they're at when they're clicking, it's Georgia, Florida, and Tennessee, and then everybody else. And so I think, and, and the other thing I would stress here is who's the AD of Tennessee? The national championship coach, Phil Fulmer, and he's highly invested in that program. Now some commenters who are Tennessee fans took exception to my to, to, to me even suggesting that if things aren't going well, he might pull the plug after three years. They think he'll be very patient, but I just think it's a little bit different. You know, I think a, an AD who's more detached will definitely be kind of makes decisions not based on emotion, but he is so, so heavily invested in Tennessee football and has been for decades. And, and remember also in this, Phil Fulmer, he went for Jeremy Pruitt. If not, Mike Leach could have been the head coach at, at Tennessee, right? That's the direction that, that John Curry had decided wanted to go in at that point. And Fulmer you know, stepped in, and it went in a different direction. Well, it's un, it's, it was such a mess, and it's unclear when exactly things broke down. I mean, yes, when John Curry went out to get Mike Leach is when he got pulled off the road and fired, and Fulmer got moved into the AD chair. But are you saying Fulmer was like personally opposed to Mike Leach being that coach? From, my, from what I understand... On the Mike Leach side, they believe that. Yes. Yeah, I'm not yeah. saying Mike Leach specifically says it, but people close to Mike Leach think that. I mean, because I do know that. And that dates all the way back to when, when Hal Mummy and Leach were at Kentucky. Makes sense. And of course, once he did get the AD job, he mostly did focus on more traditional guys with SEC experience. So uh, we'll see. You know, they, they, I will say this about Pruitt's first year. It was better. It was actually, I mean, you may say, oh, it's five and seven, and they lost to Vandy again. But they beat Auburn, they beat Kentucky, who went on to win 10 games. It wasn't without its moments. So I'll be very interested to see the progress that he makes this year. But I'm still 
I'm sure you would agree, you know, there's a ceiling to how well Tennessee will be, or how good Tennessee could be this year. I don't think there's the talent there to be a contender yet. Uh, it'll be a I don't year think there three. is. I don't think there is either. My look at it is, I think they're probably a six or seven win team. If you look at their non-conference, they have four games they should win right out of the gate. I mean, they're all at home. Georgia State, BYU, which is in Knoxville. I think that'll be the toughest of the four. A Chattanooga, which is an FCS program. And then UAB, which is a good group of five, but it's still Tennessee should beat them at home. Don't say John uh, Curry didn't do anything for you, Tennessee. That's a heck of a schedule he left behind. <laughs> yeah, so let's say they go 4-0, and and then we're talking about picking up two other wins. You got Mississippi State, who I don't think will be as good with losing those D linemen and losing Nick Fitzgerald. That's in Knoxville. South Carolina has to go there. And then you look at Vandy, who they've had all sorts of problems with in the last couple of years. Vandy has to go there. I mean, I think they should be able to win at least two of those three. And that doesn't even talk about if they can, you know, knock off Kentucky, who lost, I think, six guys go to the combine or maybe even maybe it's seven. That game, they won that game last year. And it was a more talented Kentucky team than probably this one will be. So. I mean, I think I think six wins is very realistic. I think seven wins is possible, and I think that's a positive because I I think you're right. I don't personally. I don't think Phil Fulmer will pull the plug after three years. But I think if you're Tennessee and you're not better than you're not a, a bowl team in year or two, I think the pressure will mount because I think then all some people are going to go, well, he's a first head coach and we you know he's an unproven guy, and you're starting to look at like what you said. I mean. Georgia's ever Georgia's better than what it was talent wise six or seven years ago. I think Dan Mullen has Florida where they should be a top fifteen team again. And Missouri's pretty good. I don't know how good they'll be this year if they'll be close to what, but I mean it's it's the SEC. You know, when you said they're recruiting really well, you gotta recruit really well because everybody else in the SEC is right. recruiting just about everybody else. So I mean I'm with you. I just think it's probably – I don't think he gets five years because nobody gets five years. You better be have it really going by year three. And I think – so I think this year it's like, okay, at least get into a bowl game just because the non-conference is so easy or so manageable. And then you go from there. Because I don't think it's a stretch to go – you know, if he goes 4-0, and which I think he will in the non-conference, and 2-6, I think that's that's a good step forward to at least get in the postseason for year two. I think that's that's bare minimum given on that, that non-conference schedule. Remember, the other thing is Jeremy Pruitt's big move after year one was to go out and steal Jim Chaney from Georgia as the OC, and they made him, uh, at least at the time, the highest paid OC in college football, as far as we know, $1.5 million a year. So, Matt, you know, with that comes the expectation that they're going to score more points this year and be more productive on offense. So, you know, I think if they go 7-5, and five, everybody should feel like that's been a pretty good second season and we'll see what happens from there speaking of my mailbag today somebody asked a pretty interesting question that i want to pose to you if that's okay okay hi Stuart. last week at the final four in tampa notre dame coach muffet mcgraw went viral after her passionate plea for more women to get coaching opportunities at the collegiate level obviously she was talking specifically about women's basketball but it made me wonder we've seen more women getting jobs in the nfl and nba lately do you think in your lifetime you'll see a college football team hire a female as an assistant. Any idea which coach will be progressive enough to lead the charge? And I should note that as soon as I published this, an outraged Bruce Feldman texted me <laughs> to let me know about a historical oversight that, in fact, there has been a female college football coach in our lifetime. But 
but not anytime recently. Anyway, your thoughts? Yeah, so, so it's Carol White. I actually interviewed her for a ESPN Magazine story probably 15 years ago, and she was a special teams coach for Bill Curry at Georgia Tech. And so she was on the field coach, you know, in the AFCA, and that was 30 plus years ago. So I do think you'll see see it, and probably in regards to special teams. I mean, if you think about some of the uh, most special teams coordinators, were not college kickers or punters. Now Alabama's was, but you know, most of those most of those folks were not. I think you would see it. It just depends on who the head coach is and how comfortable he is with with that dynamic. But I don't, in some ways I'm surprised that it happened 30 years ago and, and it's not really happened since then. But when you see, and I think you started to hint at this a little bit in your answer. I mean, Bruce Arians at the Bucks and a bunch of other guys in the NFL have been very receptive to this idea and it's a copycat business. And I, you know, I've met a bunch of, of women around college, around the football world, who I think going to be getting jobs or going to be in position to get jobs. So I think you'll see more of it. It's just, I think the NFL embracing it more or being open to it more, certainly with, with Bruce Arians, I think that's going to be something of a game changer. I'm not expecting it to be a huge influx in the next couple of years, but I think it will go in that direction, I think. Well, the NFL is actually very proactively trying to make this happen. They, they have a whole program for female candidates. Bruce Arians said he's going to devote a full-time assistant position or like carve out a full-time assistant position for women. There are already, I want to say about a dozen or so. Now, NFL staffs are much bigger than colleges, at least in terms of who can coach on the field. So, you know, it's not like, I, I don't think there's a, yet a woman, who, a woman who's like the quarterback's coach or the running back's coach. You know, it's more like a assistant to the assistant kind of job. And the same thing would hold true in college. Like when this barrier is crossed, it won't be probably that a woman is a, one of the 10 full-time on the field coaches. But there are so many, whether it's GAs, quality control assistants, and like there's so many now kind of ancillary coaching jobs. It really wouldn't be that hard at this point for somebody to, to afford that opportunity. You've already got, as I said in the mailbag, you know, you go into any football program now, and there are a lot of women in the building in roles, you know, kind of behind the scenes, coordinating recruiting visits or ops. Uh, Stanford's got a strength, you know, strength coach working with the football team, and I know others as well. Just hasn't been that one yet that's actually on the field coaching football. But like I said in the column, if that happens, obviously there'd be some backlash from fans or maybe other coaches. I think the players would mostly be fine with it. I, I don't think it's that unusual in their world to see women in uh, first of all working with them every day in the football building and just kind of in because many positions. many of them already are many of them already are a lot of head nutritions a lot of a lot of people as you said whether they're trainers or in the strength and conditioning program i mean uh, you, some of these strength and conditioning companies are around them more than the actual position coaches are anyway so again i i don't think it would be that much of a shock to anybody inside football if some of that stuff starts happening more. All right, so I just got a text from Nicole that she is done with her interview and ready, so why don't we bring on our guest? All right, Stu, now we're joined by our guest this week. She is our colleague, Nicole Auerbach. Stu, Nicole had a fantastic piece 
that ran on our site yesterday. And I got to admit, I read it cold, meaning I didn't know what it was about. I didn't know it was coming. I just, it was just showed up on my, on my timeline and I started digging in and it was a riveting piece. Nicole, tell people about it who haven't read it yet about the story and how you found out about it. Yeah. So it's about a high school senior. He's 18. His name's Takarius Ware. Goes by TQ. His friends and, and family, his parents obviously still call him Takarius. But he is pretty incredible. He was four when that there was a house fire and he ended up having third degree burns on over 55% of his body. They, they, they didn't think he would make it because he had actually ran back into the house. He was out, out safe in the cold and then ended up going back in and ended up in the room where the flames were, where the fire was. And in that same house fire, his older sister, who was six at the time, she passed away. She, she ran, she freaked out also, as understandably, when the house is on fire, she ran upstairs and, and ended up hiding under her bed, kind of trying to hide from the fire. And it was just this heartbreaking story. He spent almost, uh, you know, over an hour with his mom going through this, the whole timeline of that night and this fire. It was in March 2005. And, you know, just her going through how helpless she felt when she realized she'd gotten to carry us out of the house, but his skin was like flipping through her fingers because he was, he was in such bad shape. And then she realizing that, you know, she wouldn't be able to get back in and get her daughter. Her hair was melting when she tried to go back in the house. So just this really gut wrenching scene of this house fire. And then TQ went to the hospital. He was, they put him into a coma for over a month. The doctors told her there's less than 25% chance that he would survive and to kind of start bracing herself for that as well. And he has survived and he has gone through over a dozen surgeries. You know, when you have that much scarring and, um, and skin damage, you know, there's a lot of different surgeries about the skin. And then he's had to have a number of surgeries, particularly in recent years, just to get mobility. Um, you know, he was kind of explaining to me and showing me how he for a long time couldn't stretch out his arm fully straight and had to have surgery near his elbow and on the inside of the elbow in order for him to do that. And the, the, the incredible thing, and this is how it's sports related and how I first came across it is that he plays high school football and he's played both ways for Minneapolis North, which is in obviously in Minneapolis and soda. And he's going to play college next year at a junior college in Northern Minnesota. He Basically, you know, he has all of these scars all over because, again, over half of his body was, was burnt in this fire. But he also doesn't have a fully formed left hand or left foot. So everything has been challenging. But if you talk to him for five minutes, you couldn't tell any of that. I mean, he is just so engaging and thoughtful and mature. And, and you really instantly forget that you're talking to someone who who does, you know, face a lot of challenges and who does have disability because He's just such an incredible kid, and, and I think it's really cool that he's getting the shot to play college football. He's really inspired by Shaquem Griffin and this idea that, you know, even if you're not, you know, you don't have two fully fully formed hands and, you know, can do all these things, you can still play sports, you can still play football, and, you know, you can still have these NFL dreams. And so it was incredible to be around him and his family for a day and, and getting to know him. And the, the real, truly the reason that this story came on my radar was, uh, I follow about a handful of current college football players on Twitter because, you know, you're just trying to get a sprinkling of, you know, certain people who might be newsworthy. And I've followed Tate Martell ever since I went and did a story on him when he was 16 or 17 in Vegas. This is actually right before he ended up committing to Texas A&M. 
So I followed him since then, and he retweeted someone who had screenshot a Facebook post about Scariest Wear. And I was like, oh my God, I haven't heard anything about this kid. I don't know anything about this story, but it seems just incredible and, you know, possibly really inspirational that he's, you know, going to play college football and has been through so much and has this hope for the future and his career. And that's exactly what it was. And I could not be more thankful for, you know, him and his mom, his coach, all of these people to, to kind of open up their, their homes and their time and spend time with us and our photographer. It was just, it was, it was really an incredible day. The details, and you got into some of them, of that fire, and you described them very vividly. They're very harrowing. They're very, I mean, they're just awful to think about. Um, and both of you have had this experience, but what's it like to sit down with somebody and try to get them to relive what is clearly such a horrible moment in their life? It is not easy at all, but you know, those are, now that I've done a few stories that you are talking to people about kind of the worst moment of their life, you kind of know at least how to approach it. I mean, I think, you know, once you're setting up the interview, you know, you're talking about what you want to talk to that person about, like they're aware that they're going to have to kind of, you know, pull a bandaid off and talk about these things. But, you know, it's, it's really just, you kind of, let them just walk you through everything. And then if there's, you know, a detail that you're confused about or a timeline issue, just kind of go back and ask them about it. But it, it's really hard. The photographer that we had, Margo, who's amazing, she was there and she has four kids. And so she was really, you know, you know, connecting with, with, with Shawnee, Tiki's mom, when she was talking about some of these things about motherhood and about, you know, chasing, you know, looking for her children in this fire and screaming for them. And or even even some of the, the details she was sharing about, you know, when he was in the hospital and then came home and you know, just, you know, when he, the skin would kind of pull at the bandages and she would just hear these these noises from her son that, you know, she, would, she was, uh, it just didn't make the story, but at one point she was like, you know, you can tell when it's your kid, you can tell if they're crying because they're hungry, if they're crying because they're bored and they want attention. And then she was just saying how, like, when TQ was crying for her in the house when he couldn't see her because it was so black and thick with smoke, um, and, you know, they were separated. She, you know, she was describing how that, that scream is etched in her mind forever. And she's never heard anything like that before. And it's just these stunning moments. And I just, I just can't imagine having gone through that. And she was really open about, you know, the depression and everything that she's felt since losing a child. And it, it's hard. You just kind of, you try not to interject yourself. It's not about you. You just kind of let them go and let them lead you where they're comfortable talking but she was really gracious about, again, clarifying or well, how did this happen or when did this happen? How old was this person? Which room of the house? Like she was very gracious going through all of that. But, you know, it was kind of crazy because, you know, since he, you know, has kind of gotten the spotlight a little more now that he's going to college, she said, you know, she's reliving and thinking and talking about things that she had really, you know, kind of stored in the back of her mind for a really long time. And so, you know, I just can't imagine how, how difficult, you know, all of these years since that night in March 2005 have been for her. But, you know, she really does seem to be feeling this, like, this, this hope and this possibility of a, of a better future for her kids and her son I mean there was a moment where she was talking about how proud she was that three her three oldest kids so far are going to be three for three and graduating high school and just trying to break this curse of this family and these in this tragedy and just you know getting out of you know they're they're not in the best part of town 
they're not, you know, she's, she's worried about, you know, whether the streets will take her kids and things like that. And so it, they're really, it ends on the story of hope and, um, you know, and they all just really kind of feel that, that TQ's football could be like that hope or, you know, him in school and just the way he's handled everything, encouraged his mom to go back and get her GED this fall and taking college courses now. And just all of these things kind of turning the page. And, you know, we don't want to necessarily root for the people we read about, but I, I hope that's true. I mean, these are incredible people. And I just can't imagine having gone through what they did and then being willing to talk about it publicly. It's just it's really courageous. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just human to root for this kid and this family. I mean, Stu is a, a very apt word when he said harrowing as you're reading the details of this and it's heartbreaking and and then as you come through it, you know, you mentioned Shaquem Griffin and I am riveted anytime he shows up, whether it's in a, a commercial or anybody's talking about him, about what he has done and what he is doing and how he is impacting and reaching people, not just fans, but kids who, you know, you see these examples of kids who've had similar major struggles to overcome in the families. And you're kind of reading this kid's story and I am awed by it. And it's really inspiring to it and the resolve it must take. And I was thinking back a little bit as you're, you know, as you're talking about this, you know, Inky, Inky Johnson was a former Tennessee player who is now a much in demand motivational speaker. Uh, he, he had to overcome permanent paralysis in his right arm. And, it, you know, I want to say this is probably like a decade ago where he was dealing with it. And so many college, not just teams, but people bring him in to speak and I think for this young man, the story he's going to have, you're rooting for him because of how he can impact people. And there's something, something bigger there. And that's why I thought it was just such a, such a great story that you shared and told and they, and they were open to sharing something that's so personal and so, you know, I don't know. I just, that's why it really just resonated with me so much and why I'm glad you're sharing it now with us. For people who haven't read it, I really encourage them to do that. It's not somebody you're going to probably be watching on on your TV on the field this season, but it's as important as any story we're going to tell. Nicole, Bruce does not gush like this very often for any story. So (laughs) just like soak it in. You've clearly, you clearly. I appreciate it. I just want to say one one more quick thing about Shaquem Griffin, because you know, that is something that came up a lot. I mean, he loves Shaquem Griffin so much, and his family is so intrigued by him. His, his mom didn't know who he was. I, I'm still not sure she's seen football highlights of Shaquem Griffin, but she was just so excited about what he represents to her son. And just this idea that if he could get all the way to the NFL, then, like, nothing is off limits for, for her kid. And I, I think that that's one of the things that's always impressed me about, you know, these types of stories, because it, it, it doesn't matter necessarily his stats on the field or even how much he plays for the Seahawks. It's just that it's there. And, and like when TQ is inspired by him was watching him go through the combine and learning his story and seeing that he could work out and do reps and do drills just like everybody else. And, you know, I, I kind of, it, it's hard not to think the same way when you, when you watch TQ, when I'm watching him throw the ball. I mean, he was the quarterback of the JV team his sophomore year. He really throws a nice spiral. And then I hear about, you know, how he can balance a barbell, you know, a little bit with his left hand. It can't be super heavy, but all of these workarounds and all these things that 
doing in order to be strong and, and to do all these things like Shaquille Griffin did. And all he really needed was just like that hope that, you know, if there is a door and they open it a little bit and I can try to go through it, that's all I'm asking for. Cause that's all he got and he was able to do it. And so I think those are those athletes and moments where, you know, everything just is, is beyond sports. Like they're, they, they have a platform through sports, but it's really about all of that other stuff. And, um, and also you guys, like you guys both know, I'm not a huge NFL person anymore. Like I grew up on it, but now, you know, we're so enmeshed in college football, but I bought a t-shirt for Shaquem Griffin as a Seahawk last fall. And I've worn it to the bar and go watch some Sunday NFL games. Everyone would be like, why are you wearing a Seahawk shirt? And I'm like, because it's Shaquem Griffin. Like this is, this is beyond football. And maybe it's a little sappy of me, but it, but it really is. And you meet people like this who really do you know, find so much inspiration in him. And it, and it, you know, kind of the fact that he's a football player is like the afterthought. You and Mina Kimes are media, sports media's celebrity Seahawks fans. There you go. <laughs> I mean, like very, very small yeah. Seahawks fans. More and more a Shaquem Griffin fan. My entire day. Real quick, you, so you went to Minneapolis for that story, and then you went back to Minneapolis for the Final Four. Bruce mm-hmm. and I already talked about the game. People don't necessarily realize, if you've never been to the Final Four, just how many, how much of the college sports industry converges on that city, ADs, commissioners, and such. What was the kind of buzz around town there? What, what, is, on, what is on college administrators' minds right now? What is, what is the kind of hot topics? Well, that's a good question, because there is a lot of hot topics, the conversation right now. And yeah, so for a little context, the Final Four is really unlike anything else because you have all of the basketball coaches coming because they meet, the NABC Association of Basketball Coaches meets there. So if you go to any of the downtown bars, hotel lobbies, like you're going to run into John Beeline and, and Bill Self and all of these coaches everywhere. Plus you have, like even the college football playoff selection committee was meeting at the final four as well. So like I met some of the new members who just started their terms. And then you have commissioners in town. You have Mark Emmert and all the NCAA folks and a ton of athletic directors. So it, it's really a great networking opportunity and a great way to kind of feel the buzz about things. And, and I would say that the, the number one topic uh, that people are talking about is sports gambling. And, and what can schools, what can the NCAA do as it's now been legalized in more states where they have institutions? And then there's this feeling that it's eventually going to be legalized nationally. What does that mean? What's going to happen? And people don't really have answers, but everyone is talking about that. Nicole, so I had asked Stu when we were offline, I said, could you have identified Chris Beard uh, like a month ago? And then we were talking about that and I, and the one guy on Texas Tech who I could could see or knew who he was because I'd watched enough, uh, stumped onto enough Big 12 on Monday night was David Moretti because I think he looks like a taller version of one of our colleagues. Do you see it? Are we saying Chris Benini? Oh, yes. my God. How, how, is it, how do you not see that? Well, now that I'm seeing it, I, I see that. But I like how he's a taller version. You're going to have to – he's going to enjoy listening to that. Well, what's Vanini like? Five, six, five. I mean, he's not whatever. Five, no, I think he's, no, he's isn't he like five ten? I don't know. Uh, I'm I, five. I don't nine, know, so but I see it. No, I see it. They could be. They could be relatives. They could be cousins. He had not dawned on me till he said it, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, you're right." <laughs> well, Vanini's Italian. I mean, they, they could be distantly related. You don't know. We're gonna have to figure out how Chris managed to go both 
go to FAU and interview Lane Kiffin and play in the Final Four last week. It's impressive. Very impressive. All right. Well, Nicole, thanks so much for coming on. And as as we said earlier, I mean, look, we hope everybody listening to the Audible is already a subscriber to The Athletic. But if you're not, this would be a great week to do so so you can read that story. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. Thanks, Nicole. Bruce, why don't we conclude by dipping into the mailbag? Let's do it. As always, you can send your emails to Bruce. The audible pod at gmail.com. Perfect. Perfect. Good work. Okay. Caleb, Grand Island, Nebraska has a quick and timely one. Worst coaching search, Tennessee football or UCLA basketball? Well, we're going to find out. I mean, look, if Mick Cronin or Jeremy Pruitt turns out to lead his team into the top 10, then it doesn't matter. I think the Tennessee one was probably just a lot more explosive sucking. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, UCLA's was embarrassing to say the least in terms of just how many people they got rejected by and how long it went on. But there was no rioting. There was no painting the rock. No, the AD was not fired over it. So it's hard to really put those in the same breath. Mike Jackson from Birmingham, Alabama. I'm an Auburn fan, so I've been immersed in March Madness, the greatest March ever for me. And I listened to your April 4th podcast about the top football basketball coaching tandems and he wants he's wondering if we overlooked these three ready unc with roy williams and mac brown having both won national championships kansas with les miles and bill self the same and of course auburn bruce pearl and gus malzahn neither have won at all as a head coach but bruce pearl just took auburn to the final four and has done well everywhere he's been and while a lot of people including you two are down on malzahn he's been consistent and he was 13 seconds from a national championship and has a conference championship the thing is i think if he's kind of mike is kind of looking at this as a career achievement award you know i think you and i looked at it as who are the 10 best coaching combos right now we'll see if mac brown still got it but it's been a long time now since he was at his peak coaching abilities i think you and i maybe more me more so than you are pretty down on the less miles higher at kansas and Auburn, and I heard from other Auburn fans, and I'm, I'm like, you guys got to make up your mind. Do you want to fire Gus Malzahn, or do you want us to anoint him as part of a top 10 coaching combo? Because it seems to deviate from one year to the next, whether they love him or hate him. Right, and I think all three of those guys, like I, if I'm not mistaken, you did have Gus Malzahn in your top 25 a year ago. Right. It was like 22 or 23. It was in the fringe of it. I didn't have him in my top. I didn't have any of those three guys in my top 25. Mac Brown at the end of his Texas run, it had, it had gotten away from him. Now, look, we'll see what he can do in Chapel Hill now. I don't know. I, I'm a little skeptical. Obviously, the basketball coaches hold up the, that end on all three. The football coaches, I'm not sure where they are on that stage. And you're right. I do think it's not a lifetime achievement award at this point. I mean, because those other guys have done some remarkable things. But it's it's a little lacking right now, at least on our expectations. But I'm fascinated to see, especially what's going to happen in, you know, with our, with our two championship coaches coming back. So I'm a Gus Malzahn fan. I think he he's, there's no disputing. He was an innovator offensively for college football when he first got to the sport and you know, offensive coordinator of the Auburn's Cam Newton national title team. But at the end of this point, he's been the head coach at Auburn for six seasons. Two of them were great seasons. One, as they, as uh, Mike said, 13 seconds from the national championship. And the other four were pretty mediocre. So it's hard for me to defend him at this point and try to say he's that him combined with Bruce Pearl would make one of the top coaching tandems in the country. Agreed. Johnny Shea, who 
has had many questions on this podcast, and we always pronounced it she. But today, S-H-I-E, his name is spelled S-H-I-E-H, but today he made sure to let us know that it's actually pronounced at like S-H-A-Y. So Johnny, thanks for clearing that up. Can you comment on programs which seem to be on the last gasp where they're frantically retooling their offenses in order to save their jobs? The obvious case is USC, which is making a radical move to the air raid. As a Texas fan, I saw this type of last gasp offensive change by Mac Brown and Charlie Strong in their last years didn't seem to work. And would this apply to Harbaugh at Michigan with Josh Gaddis? Like, I don't see Michigan on his last gasp with Jim Harbaugh. I mean, Clay Hilton's in a much different situation where people, most USC people expected him to get fired last winter or, you know, whatever it was, three, three four months ago. That didn't happen. I mean, Jim Harbaugh had Michigan as a top 10 team, and they they fizzled mightily in the last two games. But I don't think it's a last-ditch effort, whereas I definitely think USC and Clay Helton, and I, I wrote a lot about this on our site. I mean, he needed to shake things up in a hurry to make them feel, to, to kind of bring back some energy to the program that had really been sucked out after a 5-7 and seven season. I'm actually going to go out to USC practice tomorrow, Thursday, and I'm curious to see it. I mean, all the the returns and things I've heard have been very positive about Graham Harrell, and I don't doubt he'll do a nice job there. But I think, for me, the problems with, with USC go much deeper than who was, who was the offensive coordinator. I think they were much more broad than, that, than those issues. Yeah, I would, I would also agree. I mean— I would say we'll see how. I mean, I, I think Graham Harrell is is very well respected. This is a pretty radical change for USC of all programs to be installing the air raid. We'll see if it works. But where and and you know, I have skepticism. My skepticism with Michigan is not Josh Gaddis as a coach. He's obviously come from. I mean, you couldn't ask for much of a better pedigree than to have worked for Joe Moorhead, who uh, is a is a great offensive coach, although not last year, and Nick Saban. But is Jim Harbaugh really going to let him run the offense? He says he is. He says he's got total and free control. What happens in week three? Close game. They're struggling a little bit on offense. Is Jim Harbaugh kind of go back to what? Because oftentimes that's what happens in those situations. The coach kind of goes back to what they trust. Uh, we shall see. Unfortunately, a little short on time and questions this week. So please send them more of them to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Bruce, there are a lot of big spring games this weekend around the country. So I think we're going to be talking almost like after a college football Saturday. We're going to do some, some spring game uh, hey, recaps there, and analysis. Th- so please send more of your questions. We'll definitely get to them next week, and we'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And subscribe to The Athletics if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. So come on, get over here. Yeah.